But praise God, a beautiful season of worship this morning. Um, about a year ago, I was asked by the lady who is the principal of the Christian school that meets in this building to come and do chapel. And so I started to share with her uh, kind of a discussion I wanted to have with the kids about the nature of God's uh, Ten Commandments and how they affect and fit into our lives. And she said, well, it's interesting you wanted to speak on that because she said recently I've been having a discussion with the kids in her school about kind of what, what, what we want to be known as, as a Christian school, what we want to be kind of the atmosphere of our school. And so she thought she would do uh, a bit of a, a test with the kids, a verbal test. So in chapel, she asked the kids, what are the basic rules or principles by which this school is run? Interesting responses. They said, well, no running in the hall. That's a good one. When I see the kids in the school, I say, hey, no walking in the halls. And then they kind of No uh, hitting each other, all right? That's good. Uh, no screaming in class unless you've been asked to speak. No taking other people's stuff. I want you to ask yourself a question. Do you notice a trend? What's the trend? Everything's negative. That's no different than my bowling ball, right? Here, here's what's sad. For many Christians... We define our life by God's rules and miss his intent and heart. And for many believers, if you said, hey, I have this person, they don't do this, 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 and this, people say, you must be a good Christian. So you know what? I was actually describing my bowling ball. <laughs> and that is a scary fact in the church at many times, that we feel like as Christians, we're doing well because of what we don't participate in. And quite frankly, and I just say this bluntly, it, it makes us no different than a volleyball, a basketball, the tree in my front yard doesn't do those things. That does not make us distinctly Christian. Most of us think of the Ten Commandments in terms of primarily negatives. If you bring up the Ten Commandments with people on the street, they will typically say, well, I've never murdered someone. I don't commit adultery I, 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 don't, don't, don't. And I'm afraid that the church slips into that manner of definition. Well, in the text that we're looking at this morning, Matthew 22, which I'd like you to turn to real quick, Matthew 22, verse 34, you have the Pharisees coming to Jesus. They are the religious elite of their day, if you will. They are mostly defined by negatives, that is, by the things that they avoid. Their reputation is secure and that there are certain things they would never think of doing. I want you to listen to this text from their mouths. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, that is, he is a, a lawyer, one who is schooled in the technicalities of getting by and measuring up, doing the least amount so that they might look the best. He's a legal expert, if you want to call him in our common terminology, a lawyer. He tested Christ with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which is simply to say, if you were going to stratify the law, what would the most important commandment be? What would be the one that rates at the top? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it in what sense? Okay, it is equally important. The first and greatest is to love God. The second is like it in greatness. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus makes this stunning statement. All of the law and the prophets, which is a way that Jesus speaks about the entire Old Testament canon. All of that is fulfilled in the keeping of those two commands. That's a stunning observation. What I want you to notice is that Jesus takes those two commands and elevates them to an equal level or equal place. Now, you can make an argument that there is a greater importance in loving God first because that begins to affect my heart and cause me to love others. And I would, I would grant you that distinction. But as Jesus responds to them, he knows that they are all about talking about God but have no concern for the needs of others. And as he responds to them, he takes the command to love God and the command to love others and sinks them together so that the Pharisees could not escape the power of God's law and sense at some level in their own heart a shortcoming, a sense of sinfulness so that they would understand their need of God's grace. The command is love God totally, love your neighbor selflessly. All commands drawn together in this text in a very, very powerful and pointed way to point us to the topic that I want us to discuss this morning. My message this morning is on the topic of loving others, of encouraging our desire to serve those with needs in our community and in our church family. And I believe that that desire springs from our relationship with God. So I want to I say this at the beginning. If this relationship with God is correct... I will be a man who loves others. If this relationship is out of whack, I will not love others. And I'll say it this way as well. If I don't find myself compelled to selfless service towards others, I need to question my relationship with God. Right? I mean, Jesus drew it down to an acid test. He said, by this, you will know, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And the lack of that evidence should cause an individual to question whether God has truly regenerated my heart, whether there is true change. So I want to go into this text making three observations. I want to talk about the attitude that drives neighbor love, the priority of neighbor love, and then the aim of Christian love and service. Okay, just three simple steps as we walk through this text. If, if you want to... And we're going to focus, obviously, on verse 39. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you'll remember in the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisees have already had a discussion with Jesus about, okay, so you're saying love God and love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? And what do they want? They want technicalities. They want a more specific description of who the neighbor is. What they're hoping for is the narrow definition that the person I should love is an observant Jew. That's what they're hoping for. What does Jesus do? Remember the story of the Good Samaritan. All right? The end result of the story of the Good Samaritan is this guy's an outsider. He is unlikely to participate in obedience to God's law, but does. And the person in need becomes an illustration that the command to love your neighbor as yourself is a command, in fact, to love all people in need. That's the definition that you end up with. Okay, so you can kind of 
boil this down, love your neighbor as you love yourself, that the neighbor in the discussion is anyone with a need. That is within the scope or purview of what Christians should be concerned about where they live and where they attend worship. And then he says this. He says, you must love your neighbor as yourself, which then starts to get to the issue of attitude. Okay, because loving others ultimately, as you study the life of Christ, is an issue of attitude. It's an issue of how I see myself in relationship to others. Now, what Jesus, I think, is banking on is a proverbial statement that you find in the Gospels. He says, no one ever hated his own flesh. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but my mind automatically ran to examples of people who I know did damage to themselves, injured themselves, and some close friend took his life. So I started thinking, okay, what does that mean? I think what Jesus is saying this is this. In a proverbial or principled way, it is typical that people have more love for themselves than they tend to have for others. That's Natural inclination, that's the stuff you're trying to flush out of your kids' lives as you raise them, this natural tendency of self-orientation and selfish desires, right? So Jesus, when he calls the Pharisees to love their neighbor, he says, the command of God is, love your neighbor like you love yourself. And I want you to think with me very quickly through the Ten Commandments. I want you to think of the command, thou shalt not murder, okay, as a test. Here's what Jesus said. You have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. And what is he doing? He's quoting directly from the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. And then he says this, but I say to you. Now, what is he doing? He's moving from the negative understanding to the powerful implication of that law to not commit murder. It's not simply have never taken someone's life. Jesus said if you've hated someone, you violated the command, which means what? It gets powerful. I can't get off by saying, you know what? I've never taken someone's life. Therefore, I'm in obedience to that command. The command to not murder, if you extrapolate it out in the teachings of Jesus, means to actively and affectionately care for the needs of others. The command, thou shalt not steal. I've had people pride themselves on that. They'll say, hey, one thing I don't do, I don't steal. And they feel that they're keeping the heart or the intent of that commandment. Here's what Paul said, and I think Paul is giving us an interpretation of the teachings of Christ. Paul said this, let him that stole steal no more. Meaning, not stealing is a good thing, but that is not the intent of that law. Here's what Paul says, let the one that used to steal stop stealing. Instead, let him labor with his hands that he may have to give to someone in need. You understand the difference The command to not steal is a command to be generous. Don't withhold from someone what they need. And you start to see that the law is not so easy to keep. Jesus said, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's what you heard. But I say to you, if you look upon a woman to lust, you've committed adultery in your heart already. Guilty. The command to not commit adultery is a call positively to be faithful in all areas with your mate. Do you see the difference? Things, as you understand God's law in truth, things begin to ramp up to a level where hopefully you will say, God, I can't keep that. I need a Savior. But once I've been converted by the grace of God and my heart is regenerated, I begin to gain new affections and love for neighbors. 
And as you work through the Ten Commandments, you'll find that your life will be transformed if you don't look at them as negatives that define my bowling ball, but instead as positives that describe the body of Christ. We need to escape the negative understanding of obedience to Christ and move towards a positive understanding of how it works in our lives. One writer said this. He said, selflessness, selfishness is the greatest enemy of Christian service. Almost every sinful action ever committed can be traced back to a selfish motive. It is a trait that we hate in each other, but justify in ourselves. Guilty again. I mean, how many of you say, you know what, I just want to, I want to, I want my best friend, I want my mate to be a selfish person. (laughs) Right? There is something in us that hates it and practices it. We wrestle with that. To me, to me, I don't know, sometimes you end up with a reputation that's better than reality. Do you know what I'm saying? Sometimes I think as a pastor, people assume things that they should not assume. Okay? I, I am often shocked by my capacity to be self-centered, self-preserving, self-caring. And I'm asking God to break that through selfless service to others. At the heart of my selfish choices is a self-love or a self-worship. The heart of selfless service is the heart of Christ. And the heart that will capture the world and allow them to see that the truth that we sung this morning has taken hold in our hearts will be manifested through the loving acts that we demonstrate to those in need around us. They are the grand and glorious opportunities that God puts before the church so that she can stand up and be counted as Christ's disciples. When I looked at my yard this morning, I saw an embarrassing amount of dandelions. They don't look so bad at 5 o'clock in the morning. But when the sun comes up, I'm like, what? In the, I just fertilized this yard two years ago. I'm like, I notice it's that way in everybody's yard. And I thought about my selfishness. And here's the truth. To drive out a selfish spirit requires spiritual maintenance and the work of the Spirit of God, whose aim in your life is to produce the fruit of the Spirit, which first is love. Not love of self, not simply love of your family, but love of the body of Christ and love of those in your community who have needs. That is the heart of Christ. Three weeks ago, I was down in, uh, in Houston visiting her granddaughter, and I met a young man that's starting to work for Asian Partners International in the realm of raising funds for mission work. He told me the story of a man named David Weekly. Uh, David Weekly is an entrepreneurial uh, gentleman in Houston, Texas, who in the early 70s started to build homes. By the time he was in his late 20s, he was building, he went from building six homes a year to building 300 homes a year. He had built for himself a 10,000 square foot house. He tithed regularly to the work of God and drove his dream car, this BMW that he had. In the early 80s, the uh, housing market in Houston crashed city went from building 30,000 homes a year to building 6,000 homes a year. In the process of that event, this young Christian successful person found his life decimated. Had to sell his BMW, had to sell his house, and had to walk in humility. In his 
book called The Gift and the Giver, which I would recommend that you read this book. He makes this observation. He, he says, looking back on those early days of success, it's hard to believe that I once had millions of dollars flowing through my hands and literally no good came out of it. Now, folks, that's a man that tithed from that wealth. But what did he realize? Everything I was keeping was about me and my happiness. I was stunned as I read this story. This man heard a guy named, I'll give you this guy's name that he heard speak. A guy named Stanley Tam, who is the author of God Owns Your Business. I like that title. He heard that man speak and heard that man speak of the conviction that God laid on his heart that 50% of his entire income would go to the work of God. That day, at 30 years old, God broke David Weekly's heart. He knew he had capacity to get back everything he had lost and more. And he made a commitment to God that day saying, God, whatever you give me in terms of income and time, 50% is yours. And folks, what did he realize? He realized it's easy to cut a check from your bank account easier than it is to cut time from your life. And I, that, that testimony has stayed with me. His company currently has a revenue of a billion and a half a year. A billion and a half a year. 50% of that and 50% of his time and the people he had to hire to replace himself so he could do the work of loving others. It, it just, I heard that. I was like, God bless that man. And thank you to him for writing a story and giving a challenge to people that when God blesses, make sure that you figure in this great commandment, this passion. I tell you that story to motivate you, to ask God why he's given you what he's given you. Service begins with a mindset. It begins with a mindset of selflessness. That's why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 said to the church in Philippi, have this mind in you, church, that was in Christ Jesus. And the mindset is that of selflessness. He gave up everything to meet the needs of you and I. May God help us to follow his example. So the attitude of our service is an attitude of selflessness. The priority of neighbor love in this command, I just want to touch base on this very quickly. It's second on the list, but it is like the other in importance which means that Jesus is putting on the church, for the church, an emphasis on two things. Loving God and loving others. Worshiping God and social action. Which is to say that he wants us to be committed selflessly to the meeting the needs of our neighbors, which is everyone around us. Now, this, I think, narrows down in two directions. I think it moves in the direction of the community around us and then also in a deeper way to the community of the church itself. In John 13, the passage that James will be speaking from next week, that Jesus said this, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, not if you love them, but if you love each other. So what are they watching? The world is watching a community that is transformed by the love of God, bound together in one body that goes out then and effectively serves the needs of the community around it. Okay, does that make sense? So we love each other so that we strengthen 
And when we're stronger, our ministry and service to others becomes greater. Jesus Christ, interestingly, had a reputation that unfortunately many of us cannot claim. So great was the relationship of Christ with disreputable, as Doug said last week, inappropriate people, deplorables, to use a famous word. Jesus sought out those relationships. So much so that he could be called accurately. They thought it was a slander. He took it as a praise. The friend of sinners whom he had come to seek and to save. And folks, I challenge you this morning to think through your life. Who is the disreputable person in your sphere of influence that you are serving who would call you their friend? You see, it's easy for us to become kind of cloistered in mindset in the church, to be in the holy huddle. And that's not where God called you to live. I'm sorry. God called you to go and make disciples of all peoples, of all kinds of peoples. And Jesus said, I left you an example that you would, what you saw me do, you would do it. And what Jesus did is he spent time cultivating and building relationships with disreputable people so that the gospel of God might advance. This was his intention. This was his desire. Here's a secret for you. If you desire to share your faith in Christ and to show the love of God, here's a secret, and it's beautiful. And I don't know where I got this from. I heard this from someone. I just can't remember who. It said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. They don't care about your good life if they don't think you care about them. They never want to know your Savior if they don't know that you love them like he does. And so I challenge you. I challenge you in small ways. And I, I, just, I got a text from my daughter this week, Erica. She has, by the grace of God, tried her best uh, in her job as a nurse to find opportunities to share with people. And this past week, her, one of her closest uh, co-workers that she spent some time with, developed a friendship with. Uh, her boyfriend has cystic fibrosis, and he is in critical condition at Lehigh Medical Center. So I said, what did you do? She said, I went and visited him. She said it was incredibly difficult to see a man of 24 literally disabled on a bed. But I went. And I said, Erica, that's, that's what it's about. If you want an opportunity to speak to people, let them know that you care. Get over your busyness. Amen. Get over your preoccupation with you and yours and include someone else in your life. And watch what God does. A selfish life is not a pretty life. It's not a fun life. It's not. I've been there. It's my natural inclination. The joyful life is the life that is lived for the benefit of others because that's the life of Christ. And when you're in sync with his purpose and his will, your sense of the Spirit's presence will be beautiful and glorious. So I ask you to think, who has God put in your path 
at school, at work, in your neighborhood, in your family, coaching soccer, business acquaintances, coworkers, a friend that's sick that needs a meal, whatever it is, let God touch your heart with this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Think through your life this morning. Who are you loving and who are you serving outside of your immediate family? My last thought this morning is this, and this is outside of this text, but I think it is the heart of my Savior uh, completely. The aim of neighbor love is crucial. In fact, the aim of your love, that would, the, the goal that you go after it for, will determine how faithfully you prosecute your neighbor love. I want you to listen to me this morning. I have an observation that I'm going to make. And sometimes when I make these, I'll I'll tell you this. Tomorrow morning I feel guilty because I feel like it was hard on people. But uh, here it comes. Some, I would observe, share Christ, but never give people a compelling reason to believe Christ. And sadly, some serve, but never point to the ultimate serving and his purposes in the cross. And I believe both miss the mark. We are a Christian church. Friday, I was helping a friend put a deck on behind his house. And this uh, Mennonite young man from Lancaster walked around the back of the house. He was measuring the roof to put shingles on it. And uh, my friend Nick said to him, uh, uh, this kid's name is Jason. He said, hey, Jason, are you a Christian? Like, just like that, because we were assuming, well, you're from Lancaster, you have to be a Christian, right? (laughs) You're born in Lancaster, you are a Christian. Here's what the kid said. I said, you're a Mennonite, aren't you? He said, yeah. Nick said, well, are you a Christian? He said, well, that's rather pointed. Here's what the kid said. He said, I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died for my sins, and I'm trusting in him. He knew I was a pastor because my friend had told him that, which I hate. (laughs) I hate it when people blow my cover, you know. (laughs) And he said, well, how's that answer? (laughs) I said, that's the best answer you could have given me. Because if you tell me you're a Mennonite or a Baptist or a Bible church person, it doesn't tell me anything. It just tells me a building you go into on Sunday. I love that answer. That, folks... That's the message God has given us to share. The aim of all of our service has a greater goal in mind. Our aim is not to give people temporary relief, but ultimate relief. Okay? So be sure that your service is not truncated and severed from the ultimate purpose of God, which is found in the Great Commission. Be sure that as you commit to the Great Commandment, love your neighbor, that you don't do it to feel good about your life that you don't do it to mitigate guilt about how good your life is. Do it for the gospel. And when you do it for the gospel, you will find a a new sense of mission in your life comes. Your life will become an adventure. I have a friend I met two years ago. His name is Chris Ponectero. He's the property management guy I use for a couple of houses in Allentown. The second time I was with Chris, he's a street kid that has become very successful in business. And somehow he knew I was a pastor too. We got talking, and he says to me, he says, have you ever heard of the Way of the Master? Which is Kirk Cameron's evangelistic program. It's awesome. It's awesome. I said, 
I, I tried to play sheepish, okay? Like, yeah, I think I've heard of it. I, I took the class, okay? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I, I've heard of it. He goes, uh, I watched those videos. Like the video, the man on the street interviews, like, do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus? What? He said, I love watching that. Then he says to me, and I just love this. He says, that's what you're trying to do to me. <laughs> well, look, we'll talk about being exposed. I said, well, Chris, yes, that is what I'm trying to do to you. <laughs> and I have fascinating conversation. Here, here's what I want you to know. He had an expectation that I, as a Christian, would share Christ with him. I have not disappointed him. I disappointed other people. I haven't disappointed him. He expected me to share the words of life with him. Folks, I think many opportunities slip by us on a daily basis because we're too self-centered and we're too quiet about the truth that matters most. We're shamed into silence. We're overly concerned about what people will think of us instead of about their eternal destiny. May God, by the Spirit, you read through the book of Acts, the Spirit of God came on Peter and he spoke with boldness. The Spirit of God came on Stephen and he spoke with boldness. The words of life. Here's what I want to say to you, Okay. If you serve without the aim of sharing the gospel, don't call it Christian service. It's service, and it's fine, but it's not Christian service. Okay, I encourage you as a church, we encourage you as a leadership team, get involved in all kinds of service. If you're serving in a Christian organization, go for it. If you're serving in an organization that has a kind of a broader array of people, that's your field. The people that you're serving with and laboring with, seek opportunities to let the love of Christ come through your heart to them in the words of the gospel. So here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.2. He said, in the midst of laboring day and night to meet his own needs and the needs of those around him, here's what he said. He said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified why? Because Christ is the embodiment and manifestation of God's supreme love. And he, Christ, is the hope of forgiveness. Folks, the reason Paul couldn't just serve and never tie it out to Christ was the work of Christ on the cross is the only way, 1 John 3.16 says, that I can actually begin to grasp and know the love of God. People can know a general sense of love. It's not till it ties out to the gospel that they go, oh. May God give us opportunities and a passion to say in our hearts, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, for the distinct advantage of us, in the place of us. And we ought to lay ours down for others. Because the cross is the clearest expression and ultimate evidence of God's love for rebel hearts. It's the cross. It's the cross. So in all of our efforts... We're constantly mindful of the cross. Service must aim at and be driven by gospel sharing. I'll say it this way. All neighbor loving should be in service to gospel sharing. Meaning one prepares for the next. Here's the stupid illustration that's in my notes that I thought I really should cross that out. But I want to pleasure you with this, okay? Think of Thanksgiving dinner, okay? I go to my mom. We give, we've gone to my mom's house for 56 years for Thanksgiving dinner. That's how old I am, okay? 
haven't missed one. Here's what I thought. I thought, what if I got there and my mom had cooked all the food and the house is full of the aroma and she never served the meal? Get it? That would be the ultimate frustration and disappointment and the reason to never go back. Okay. <laughs> Here's what I fear. Here's what I fear. I fear that in our selfless service, we are, as Paul said, the aroma of Christ. But we never serve the bread of life. Folks, your service is not a substitute for gospel sharing. But your service is in service to gospel sharing. Therefore, your service should be one of the most passionate things you do because it is in service to the proclamation of the greatest truth that has ever come to this earth, and that is the work of Christ on Calvary's cross. So if you're here this morning, here's what I'm going to say to you. If you've never trusted Christ, I want you to know that rule-keeping will never save you. And if you truly understand the intent of the Ten Commandments in their fullness, they'll scare you. I shared this with a friend in the truck. Uh, John Whitehead knows who I'm talking about. He's a mutual friend. I shared the commandments of God with him. I said, have you ever lied? He said, yeah, what does that make you? It makes me a liar. He's 26, has a girlfriend. He's 29. You ever lusted? He goes, <laughs> everybody does. <laughs> I said, uh, you ever cut eight hours from work? And he knows John and I are good friends. His boss. Is John. He goes, well, I don't know if it's fair to answer that question. <laughs> I said, well, then I'll just assume that you have, okay? Because if you never did, it'd be very easy to say no. And I said, Jake, so have I. So have I. I said, the thing that makes you and I the same is that we're both sinners in need of a Savior. I've eaten the bread of life. You need to. You read the Gospel of John recently? And I'll quick share this story with you because it was precious. I gave him the gospel of John that the guy taught us to have in the car and give it to people. So he read it, and uh, he calls me the next day, and he goes, he says, PT, he says, I read that book you gave me, and he said, uh, I'm a little troubled by the end of the story. Gospel of John. I said, well, which part? He said, the story about Peter and Jesus on the beach. Oh, I said, you mean when, when Jesus didn't believe Peter? He said, do you love me? Peter says, Yeah. And Jesus says, Peter, do you really love me? That bothered him. And then he says to me, he says, uh, he goes, hey, by the way, what was up with the people who worshiped the god Pilates? I'm like, Pilates? <laughs> and I'm talking to him, answering more of his questions, and all of a sudden it pops in my mind. I said, oh, yeah, and Jake, uh, there was a guy named Pilate who had centurion soldiers. Pilots, centurions. Not plotty centurions. <laughs> so I had to work through a couple of details. I was like, Pilates? I, is that the book I gave you? you know? So here, here look, I, it's not a, I, I love sharing Christ with people. I want other people to have the joy. I just want, you don't have to be like Tim Hoff. You don't have to be like Sandy Wagner. God help us. One. <laughs> One is good, okay? There, there are some of you who have a, a very effective and quiet way of working into people's lives by the power of the Spirit, and you see God work. You don't have to be like us. 
People think I'm an extrovert. I'm actually one-on-one. I do not like sharing the gospel in a group, except in this setting. I want you to know the joy that ties out. This service has a purpose. It is in service to the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. And here's what Rick Warren said. He said, when a church has a great commitment to the great commandment and the great commission, they will become a great church. So, so here's the thought in my mind. The thought in my mind is this. It's, it's the what if question. I, I watch what God has done at the building. And, and we mentioned last week that we needed 10,000 for the lights. It's done. Uh, it just happened, happened right away. God had given someone that gift that week. And they had prayed about it Saturday night and came Sunday morning. And, and I didn't even plan to say anything about that because I hate asking for money. Uh, so here, my thought is, what if, what if God really got a hold of our hearts? What if the kind of effort that we're putting in the building was put into ministry in service of gospel sharing? What would happen? What would happen? If I was devoted to not just doing this for a building, but for, and we are, I mean, I know this is our heart, that God will change lives in that place. But my question is, I'm spending a whole lot of time there working on a building. Would I do that for others? Does it make sense? A nice place for us and ours. What about them? That's my question. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you are followers of the King of Kings who gave and came and shed his blood for your redemption. By this, if you love each other and those of ill repute, go from here today and serve. As you leave here today, uh, two things that I want you to keep in mind. When you go towards the cafeteria, the food is right over there, okay? <laughs> go down that hall, and then there are a lot of service opportunities. Some are directly related to our church. Some are service opportunities in our community. Some are in West Virginia. There's all kinds of ways that you can get involved. I see Laura's here from the Karenet Center in Hackettstown. I see the ladies who are here from the Hoving Home. Please Go and encourage these people. If you want to give them a check, give them a check, okay, to help them in the work that God's called them to do. Uh, be free. Be free and watch what God does, okay? So there are some sign-up sheets of the things that you might want to get involved in. If you just look, I'm looking for a way to express Christ's love in my life. It, my life needs to change, okay? And I realize there's seasons of life and different times that you have more time to do different things. Financially, there's different seasons, but folks, I don't think there's any excuse for seasons of life where I'm not involved in loving others. It doesn't measure up to the biblical directive. And if I am too busy, I'm too busy. I need to make room in my life to do the things that are priority with Jesus, loving God and loving my neighbor. Father, would you help us? By the Spirit, to truly love others. And may our loving service of others be in service to the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, don't let us just hear truth today. Let us be that truth. For the eyes that are looking at us this week, Father, let them see Christ in our service and in our speaking. I pray for the glory of the cross of Christ. And all God's people said, amen. amen.